0: One of my elders a long time ago from Akwesasne, Ernest Benedict, uh, really motivated me with uh, a translation of my name and, and, and really, really a uh, focus from my work in saying that that, that was my role, to, to take our wisdom, to learn what I could from our own culture and our traditions and our own people and to do it justice and bring, bring those messages to the, to the outside world. And that's what I've been trying to do, to, to honor that and uh, to honor the struggle of our people by bringing the authentic voice of uh, the Mohawk Nation, but not only Mohawk Nation, all indigenous struggles into the spaces where they weren't welcome.
1: Hey, Nene DeLuizi, Pam Palmiter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. I'm a lawyer, professor, author, and activist for River Bar First Nation, and my motto is education for action. Indigenous rights, social justice, and protecting the planet. On this podcast, you're going to get an education of a different kind. One that's enriched by the cultures, insights, and lived experiences of Indigenous activists, land defenders, water protectors, artists, lawyers, thought leaders, academics, leaders of all kind, effectively, who are on the front lines of resistance, resurgence, and revitalization. And today's podcast is all about the land, quite literally. So make sure you stay tuned. This is going to be a good one. Welcome back. I'm your host, Pam Palmer, and I am so happy to welcome to the show one of my good friends, one of my partners in crime, one of my Conrad's, one of my favorite people in the whole world, Dr. Tayegi Alfred. Thank you so much for being here. My friend. I know you're busy with this huge book tour right now, and you know how I know, because I was on one of those events, to a sold out room. You could literally hear a pin drop when you were speaking. It's just so very exciting that this book has come out. And for anyone who doesn't know Dr. Alfred, he was on my show way, way, way back, like more than four years ago talking about his work because he's been leading the way on indigenous sovereignty and resistance for decades, long before people were even talking about that. And if it were not for his writings, I don't know how I would have survived all of my university education, especially law school. Literally, Ty and may he rest in peace, Danny Paul, who wrote We Were Not the Savages, they spoke brutal truth to power and they countered that tired old narrative that you still hear sometimes today and sometimes just outright lies about us. Dr. Alfred's an award-winning thought leader with a degree in history from but also a doctorate in political science from Cornell University. And he founded the University of Victoria's Indigenous Governance Program, which I attended several times in his Warrior Camp, and Concordia's Native Student Centre. He is the author of four books, one of which we'll talk about today in depth, but we're going to talk a little bit about all of them. And before we get into all of his amazing work, Hi, maybe you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit and the nation that you come from.
0: Um, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Tyaya Alfred, and uh, I'm Ganawage Mohawk. For those of you that don't know Ganawage, uh, where it is, it's just outside Montreal. And uh, I was born and raised there and spent uh, my adult life moving around. And uh, teaching in universities in Concordia at Concordia University, University of Victoria. Um, I'm now back working in my home community as of 2019. Uh, In the meantime, uh, I've committed myself to indigenous struggles and translating the the wisdom of our people into a language that uh, white people can uh, understand and appreciate, and coming at them with the challenge of our continuing existence. And one of my elders a long time ago from Akwesasne, Ernest Benedict uh, really motivated me with uh, a translation of my name and, and, and really, really uh, a focus for my work in saying that that, that was my role, to, to take our wisdom, to learn what I could from our own culture and our traditions and our own people, and to do it justice and bring, bring those messages to the, to the outside world. And that's what I've been trying to do, to, to honor that and uh, to honor the struggle of our people. By bringing the authentic voice of uh, the Mohawk Nation, but not only the Mohawk Nation, all Indigenous struggles, into the spaces where they weren't welcome and where it makes people uncomfortable, so that's that's what I've been proud to be doing for the last thirty something years. Uh, in the meantime, uh, yeah, I bounced back and forth, and uh, I, I just have to say I'm a proud father of uh, three sons from the Wet'suwet'en Nation, and uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. And uh, look forward to the <laughs> conversation
1: we have. Wet'suwet'en Nation, okay? So your kids have got literally the best, two out of the three best, Wet'suwet'en, Mohawk. We're just missing Mi'kmaq in there somewhere. But I feel like you have enough Mi'kmaq comrades that it's all pushed together. And your sons probably get to learn from everything that you've done and all the cool Mi'kmaq people that you hang out with.
0: too. Well, you know, aside from our friendship and uh, collaborations over the years you know, Kahnawake and the Mi'kmaqs and Mohawk's and Mi'kmaqs are always, you know, we're tied together uh, yeah. over history and culturally. And, you know, I don't want to say frenemies, but, you know, we, we, we've, <laughs> <Don't> comp- <dance. laughs> we've competed in the past and I've been reminded that there's Mohawk warrior graveyards outside some communities over there in Mi'kma'ki. Um <laughs> But I, I think that, you know, of all the nations and the, the relationships that we have, Kinship-wise, sharing of wisdom and knowledge. Most importantly, whenever one of us is in trouble and facing down uh, a a threat, you know, our Mohawks go and support the Mi'kmaqs and the Mi'kmaqs always come to support us. So uh, I'm proud of our friendship and I'm proud of the relationship that our our people have.
1: Me too. Just don't drive around Six Nations, for example, with a license plate that says Mi'kma'ki. Just For anybody out there, just so you know, you're going to get tons of jokes and harassing. But I do love that about our nations, because during what happened, you know, the siege in Oka, you had Mi'kmaq people from nations all over go there when we were having troubles in um, Eskinobridge. And even just recently, um, you had Mohawks come over and also Wet'suwet'en. Like, there's like movement back and forth now. Like we have a, Common enemy, so to speak. But before we get into the very exciting parts about your book, because I'm so excited to talk about your book. One of the things I love about this podcast is that everyone I talk to has something really cool, a really cool story or something really cool background. And you, you used to be a Marine. And I'm thinking, man, Mohawk Marine, that's amazing. Uh, What made you decide to go into the Marines and do you think it's had any lasting impact on, on your life?
0: I've I've thought about that question so much over the course of my life. And I think there's a number of answers to that question about why, and they're all true, even though they're different. So one is just, you know, when you're 17 years old, uh, there's the whole psychological dynamic of wanting to leave, wanting to do something, wanting to strike out on your own. Um, and, and I think that was a big part of it for me. There's also the impact of propaganda, uh, G.I. Joe, uh, all the war propaganda that exists in movies and uh, comic books at the time and so forth, where it creates the idea, it's a romanticized idea of, uh, of being in the military. And then there's there's just the tradition. And I think this is probably the biggest one there's just a tradition among our nations, and I know it's the same for years, but it's especially strong in Ngunnawaga uh, to join the United States military and to, to seek to prove oneself as a warrior. Uh, at that time, it was mostly men. Uh, since then, it's become brothers and sisters who have gone and um, embraced that ideal and uh, struck out on that path. It's, a, it's kind of a combination of adventure and like seeking adventure and then challenging yourself at the same time and so i, I mean i remember i was 15 years old i wanted to get away from Gunwaga. I haven't grown grown up there and been there my whole life and uh going down to the recruiting office in plattsburgh new york and uh with my buddies and i originally went to the, Na- the navy recruiter because my cousins have been in the navy but then on the way out the marine recruiter and anybody who knows the marine corps knows they're they're, they're quite aggressive, eh? And they're, they're quite bold. And, uh, he's like, what the hell you want to join the Navy for? You know, what are you doing, joining, (laughs) kind of putting down the Navy? And, uh, I was, he said it more helpful terms than that, but I won't say it on your, uh, keep it PD. Uh, but, uh, it struck me and I was like, I gotta gotta see this guy's crazy. I don't want to hear what he's saying, you know? And, uh, he got me, he got me hooked. And, uh, it kind of tapped into something that I had been feeling, you know, I tell, I tell people this and I don't know whether it makes me crazy or, or what, but I used to have dreams about shooting and being in war and, and, and all those kind of situations, like dreams, like it was so real, like lucid dreams. And so for me, it was like, okay, I got to go do this. And uh, that's how it happened. I did the test and, you know, I got a pretty, pretty good score, actually a really good score on the ASVAB as it's called, like, it's so an intelligence test and whatever you whatever you qualify for in terms of jobs. Okay? So said the guy, when I went back, he's like, uh, you know, you can do computers were just emerging at the time, you know, you do computerization, you could do avionics, you could do whatever you want to do. You want to be an intelligence officer, I'm an intelligence specialist. I'm, and I was like, No, I want to be in the infantry. <laughs> and he's like, what the hell's wrong with you. He goes, That's we that's, that's where we put the guys who failed the test. <laughs> <laughs> no i said i'll join in the marines i want to fire a machine gun i want to blow stuff up and i want to be on the ground i want to be like a, 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 on the battlefield kind of uh attitude you know and he's like well okay is that's what you want i'm warning you he, he goes uh it's not easy but i'll sign you up and anyway that's what i did and uh for me like the, the lasting impact uh it's still there every day and anybody who's been in uh military service but especially marine corps you know that it shapes you right? You're, you're at such a young age like i could join when i was 17 i went to boot camp the as soon as i turned 18 i went to boot camp um and i i'd gone from being kind of like a slightly overweight lazy kid to going through this training and coming back lean lean and mean you know and uh and it's really shaped my own physicality and my own sense of discipline, organization. All these kind of basic traits that you have, and um, I think it served me well. I mean, there's certain things about it that you have to process once you get out and you want to leave behind. You don't. You don't always want to have a marine attitude towards, for example, parenting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I I don't know how many I've heard it from all three of my sons. Uh, at various times you know like dad you were the marine I'm not a marine so you know you have to figure that out (laughs) and uh, (laughs) there's there's that and then there's just you know the politicization that goes in you know the the kind of indoctrination uh, this kind of militaristic very kind of gung-ho Americanism that I was fortunate and kind of after I got out I got immersed in in the culture of our people and the history of our people and in its movements that allowed me to think through that and leave it behind. And so it's the way I look at it, it's like keeping the good things. I'm still highly structured, highly disciplined, I think highly effective in, in pursuing a mission. Um, and then I think I've also over years managed to shed the, uh, the things that weigh you down, you know, from being someone who continues on their journey in their life and you're not held at that emotional level. Um, it's a challenge for anyone who's been in the military but uh, it's, do- it's it's doable and it's something that I think that experience of the Marine Corps to me made me who I am and so I can't go back and rethink and mm-hmm. it you know out of my life I, I have to I have to just say that was that was part of my journey
1: well and and thank goodness that you came home and decided to put all of your indigenous thoughts and ideas and manifestos together because now literally we've got several decades of indigenous peoples coming up in universities and actually having access to content that tells us to be proud of who we are that this is about decolonization it's about rejecting all of those things that you know colonizer tried to put in our heads and how do you identify those things and you know really focus on our sovereignty. And so for me, when I was going to, you know, going to school and then going to law school and, you know, doing my grad work and everything, I think the first one of your writings that ever impacted me was heeding the voices of our ancestors. Cause at the time I was doing my doctorate, it was on indigenous identity. And I wanted to get like a broad scope of what are all the different nations thinking? I was like, where's all the books from all of our indigenous leaders? You know, there was some out there and thank goodness Danny Paul had his We Were Not the Savages because, oh my gosh, otherwise we would just think that we we're horrible people if if we didn't know the opposite was true. But heeding the voices was really about pride in our identity, being honest about the conflicts there are, it's about our rise. What inspired you to write this book?
0: Revenge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I wrote this book as my dissertation. And uh, it, it, it was written in the midst of my own journey to learn more about the true history of our relations here. The true history of the land more about our culture about how we're how we came to be in this situation that we're in and the systems and the ideas that they use to keep us down and to get all our land you know i i had come to these questions myself in my own life and then i had the opportunity after doing my bachelor's degree in history which did not focus on indigenous issues by the way uh, which focused on something completely different but as you as you alluded to there wasn't really anybody that I could turn to in terms of mentors, professors, aside from maybe one or two people, you know, there, there were, there was Vine Deloria Jr. Who I had encountered uh, in terms of his books during high school. But other than that, it wasn't where you could go to university and learn and be influenced. And so you had to kind of think through these things yourself and be lucky enough to kind of encounter an author or be assigned a book or find a book in the library. There was no internet at the time. Uh, find a book in a library that, that, that helped you think through these things. But when I got to grad school, um, when I started doing my master's and my PhD, um, I, I encountered the idea that natives were a thing of the past, like a remnant of history. I actually gave a talk at Cambridge University in England and uh, one of my friends told me afterwards, the person didn't have the guts to come up to me and say it to my face, but it was a senior professor at Cambridge, which is like the best university in the world, uh, at the reception afterwards. And he told me that this guy said that, oh, I can't do the British accent properly. I'm not going to yeah. <laughs> he just like brilliant talk, brilliant talk. But uh, it's a shame that those people are the remnants of history. You know? the remnants of history. And this was much later than, after, than, than when I did my dissertation, but it still pointed to the challenge. So when I say revenge, I mean, here I was, I was the first native person to go to Cornell's government school in political science. I think I, I'm the first person to get a PhD in political science who's Native American. And so to go into that field, And to encounter all these theories, these ideas, and not only in political science, but in anthropology and history and so forth, where the dominance of the white man was so hegemonic that it was almost impossible to bring any kind of truth or authenticity about us into that whole discourse. Um, At best, what you could what you could argue for was them tolerating or accommodating you. Um, and you finding a place in their system, and taking on a small role in the ideas and the, the structures that they had created. So for me, of course, being from Gananoque and being a Mohawk, that's not good enough. <laughs> and so <laughs> I wanted to challenge and, and take on the whole structure. I wanted to, to dissect it, and I wanted to take it apart, and I wanted to show that actually the history of how the Indian Act and our communities came to be the way they were wasn't this kind of natural progression of civilization, which is utter bullshit, but it was a whole litany of crimes and and lies and frauds and abuses that white people did to us that allowed them to take on this false mantle of superiority. And so for me, the first step in that was kind of dissecting the structure in the system and showing them in detail what happened and what didn't happen. So that's, that that's how this, this book came about. It was kind of like this vengeance mode, which kind of carried on and still carries on through my, my whole career it was the first step in saying, okay, let me pull back the, let me pull back the screen on this here. Eh, it, it, it's not Europeans are smarter. It's not Europeans have better ideas. It's Europeans are more <laughs> devious. Uh, as, as we were reminded by uh Beatrice Medicine at the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, their ancestors were dirtier. And so they came here with diseases that caused us to fall down, and then they took advantage of that. That's the core message, and I wanted to show all the techniques and tactics they used in order to do that. But then also begin the process of understanding the impacts of all that upon us psychologically and culturally and so forth and there's a bit of that in the first book but it's a theme that kind of gets taken up uh later on as i as i progress in my own journey
1: well i'm so thankful for that book because your revenge was my resistance it was the thing i could hold on to when i was doing my doctorate on native identity because you know how universities are they want you to read all these theorists liberal theorists and like all these people who aren't you know aren't native and from all different backgrounds. And I just felt so bogged down with this. I don't know. This just doesn't speak to me. And thank goodness for your book. Cause it was like one of those things where, okay, I have this, I can get through with the rest of my doctorate. Um, you know, you're just kind of struggling and thank goodness that that, that was there. And it didn't take long. When you think about it, it's like, three decades ago that book which makes us what like 35 Ty? I'm thinking you know we're we're just not that old for a book of yours who have been out for 30 years but now just, like
0: I mean yeah. literally you know people say this all the time but I can literally sit here and it's like it was yesterday when I took the photocopies and put them in an envelope and just wrote on it you know Oxford University Press and put it in the mail that's how things were done back then it's it's so different today but just taking a chance like here here you go do you want to publish this and uh yeah it, it does not seem like that long ago but it is it is a massive shift there has been sorry a massive shift in the in the presence yeah. of indigenous people and and it's kind of shifted what people what people's motivation are in doing these kinds of things, what their motivations are. Like like I said, for me, there was vengeance and, and, and it was driven by that, but also I had to walk the line of credibility, you know, and I can remember so many times thinking, okay, this is kind of a hard message and I want to make it an even harder message for them, but it's so easy for them to dismiss because they're racist, but also they'll pick any kind of excuse to, to dismiss this. And so I can't give them that excuse. So I have an Ivy League PhD. It's Oxford University Press. I got reviewed in the Globe and Mail. Uh, Amer- the Canadian and American Political Science Association gave it thumbs up reviews, you know. So any of these jablonis over here who have their degrees from some, some rinky-dinky university, but happen to be an older white male, and usually stand on that, they can't come at me. They they really can't come at me because even on their own terms, I beat them at their own game. And so you have to listen to what I have to say. You don't have to take it to heart, of course. You don't have to um pay attention to it, but you can't dismiss it. And you can't keep it out of your out of your discourse. So I was always I was always very conscious of that, and I was playing on well, it's not playing really. It's like taking advantage of the the, the credibility that comes. I've done the
1: same thing. And it's like, we have two worlds. We have to be credible and respectful and honor our ancestors to our own nations and communities, which is a big job whenever we do something. But in that other world, that academic world, you get all of the the papers and the letters behind your name and you get all the stuff that matters to them. And then you can deliver those, those messages, which is like, and then, I mean, four years later, boom, out comes peace, power, and righteousness. And I'm like, what already? He has an indigenous manifesto. And for years that was required reading in my classes um, because it was just so so powerful again, another really powerful book, different, different from the first one. So w- what inspired you to write this one?
0: This, the second one was, was really motivated by, I would say if, if I had to go back and think of the, of the different emotions and the, the, the kind of um, the psychology that, that I brought to it, it was frustration really because I had gone through the experience of working in you know the band council system, these kind of imposed colonial systems operating within our communities and I kind of stepped out of that and tried to learn as much as I could and get involved in in Indigenous traditional systems both in the Haudenosaunee context and also in British Columbia and, and where I was living and working at the time and you know, because of my involvement family-wise. And the dominant emotion there is frustration because I saw that where I thought that the solution was bringing back our traditional systems, the solution to colonialism was not just bringing back the the systems, but really working through the the psychological impacts of that multi-generational trauma of colonialism. So in fact, to put it bluntly, we had a lot of colonized people working within traditional systems, undermining the power and the ability of the traditional systems to liberate us from colonization. And I think that's what that book really reflects. And I didn't want to, and I wasn't capable at the time of really diagnosing the whole of our population, but I did have a hell of a lot of experience working with leaders from the community level to the provincial level, federal level, even international level at that time. Um, And I I felt confident in being able to level some critique and some criticisms at the structure of indigenous leadership in our country, but also even uh, using individual paths and the actions and words of individual leaders to illustrate the points that I was bringing forward. And I felt that it was time to do that. Like, pe- let's back up to the to the 90s there. We're still pushing as a collectivity against colonization. And people were very reluctant to criticize our own. Very reluctant. You were almost seen to be undermining the cause um, to be criticizing leaders or to be bringing anything out. It's quite the opposite now, but you know, at the time to level criticism at a leader or your own, that was, that was risky. And uh, it was, it was not something that people did. And so I think that this book took a chance on that, uh, to open up that space for critique and self critique by, by turning the, the lens on ourselves. So up until that point, diagnosing, you know, the evils of colonization and pointing to, like I said, how we were defrauded, and our land was stolen, and lied to, and so forth, and the evils of the structure, but not much looking in the mirror. And I think that this book um, tried to get people to look at our own leaders and our own structures um, for what needed to be addressed and what needed to be fixed. And uh, so that level of frustration with being held back by this colonial legacy um, basically the, the Pollyanna attitude that I might have had in the past previous to that, looking at the revival of the longhouse or the revival of the hereditary system. That's all we need to do. And it's all going to be good. And finding out that even when you do that, nah, you know, we're we're still burdened by, by, by mm-hmm. colonization. And so uh, the positivity in the book is saying still that our systems and our philosophy and our ceremonies and our, Um, Our culture, basically, that is the answer, and it is good, and it is strong, and we just need to invest and really live that out in order to be uh, a true human being or a native person. And we really need to make that our politics and get away from the compromised, uh, trying to get along, uh, moderate, fitting in that uh, decolonization had, had really Put forward as a pathway up until that point, so uh that's what peace power was. It was using the condolence ceremony from the Ojibwe to diagnose the ills of Native leadership. If I had to put it in one one sentence,
1: and it and it's so funny because I think at this point we, you know, to, to call out the colonizers and say, you know, here's everything that's happened, here's what continues to happen. It's a bit easier than being brave enough to say, okay, well, I've got to, I've personally got to do some decolonizing and so does our nation. And so do, you know, like we've got to do this and that's an equally hard message. So I feel like you were embracing hard the first book and it's like even harder the second book. But when people read it, they were like, oh my gosh, he's been saying what I've been thinking, but I didn't want to say for a long time, or they're still in a position where they can't say it. But at least the book is out there saying, you know what, we should maybe think about some of this stuff, maybe make some changes. And so when Wasaze came out, and again, that was only like five or six years later, I was like, oh, yes. So you've got the critique, you've got, you know, the in looking inside, and now you've got the voices of warriors, which is kind of like you're, you're ramping up, you're, you know, diagnosing all these problems. And it's like, but here's, Here's the voices of the warriors who are going to inspire you to action. What inspired this book? Because to me, my favorite thing about it is hearing like literally the voices and the thoughts and the minds of the warriors themselves. You know how some people might like cite a reference, oh, page six of some book. And you're like, well, what were they about in your book? You got to actually hear from them and, Mm -hmm. and know what they were about.
0: I really appreciate you saying that, man. uh, I hadn't heard that before, but it it means a lot. And, uh, yeah, thank you. You know, uh, I think that what makes that book as an experience writing it different from writing other books was the fact that it really, really embodied the practice and the methodology that I have embraced, which is you have to live it. You go and you live it. And then you you reflect on what you've learned and then you try to bring that message to the people. And so all of those people that are profiled in the book, uh, I know them. I had relationships with them. I learned from them. Uh, I engaged with them. We sat down and we had conversations and really opened up uh, about these issues. And I think that that's what makes that book different. As you're saying, uh, it's not it's not a researched uh, book so much as it is a lived experience related, and then added to or supplemented with research. So the core of it are these relationships and me trying to convey, as an Ongoi honge, the power and the vision, and and really give respect to the struggle of these individuals as the core of what resistance is. So I didn't research resistance and then try to make these people fit into this theory. I talked to these people. I actually went to where they lived and and experienced it and, and, and gained my own knowledge from that. And then I used that. And then I brought in books and theories from other parts of the world and writers that elaborated on their ideas and that were consistent with their ideas. And so that book, I think, reflects what your, what your remarks are and that the core of it is this really authentic vision. And it's not necessarily mine. Um, I was responsible in that book for translating the wisdom and conveying the experience. These people trusted me to do that, and that's what I sought to do with this book here. And, and the, the motivation in that was actually the conversations that I had Uh, coming out of uh, Peace, Power, Righteousness. You know, that book is, um, it's impacted a lot of people. Like, uh, (laughs) you know, when you're writing them, you never know how it's going to be received, but it's sold over 10,000 copies over its lifetime. Um, It's used all over. And every time I I talk to people about it, they say exactly what you said. They're like, this this book could be about my community. Uh, It's the same thing I'm thinking. And we have this conversation, which is all great. But then there's always the point at that before I wrote Wasazi. There's was always the the point where they said, "Well, what do we what do we do about it?" <laughs> 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 you know. So you pointed to a problem, and you've kind of said in an idealistic way, like this is what should be. Well, how do we do it? Mm. Why don't Why don't you tell us how? And that tell us how. I didn't really feel, you know, even though I grew up in Ganwage and I worked in politics and stuff. Uh, I didn't have the the weight of experience to be able to tell anybody confidently, well, this is how you do it. I need to go and learn. And so even though I was, uh, I was in the middle age at the time and uh, starting to be in middle age and uh, I was a full professor and I had been a negotiator and land claims and all this stuff, I still felt that I I had to go and talk to the real people mm-hmm. who were really laying it on the line in, in various ways, you know, and had dedicated their life to these struggles, and that's what I did. And then I attempted to bring that forward. And uh, I think that I think that it's still a book that challenges, um, even though it was written quite a long time ago now. Um, it still challenges people because our politics and uh, a lot of the ways that our communities have changed haven't been consistent with this message of resistance. A lot of the ways our communities have changed and our movement has evolved is consistent with the idea of, of moderating it, of, of reconciling, of, of trying to come to some sort of cooperative stasis with the state. And that's not what this book Usazi says. That's not what our warriors were saying. It was all about challenge. It was all about structural change. It was all about a, a radical critique and so there are some people doing that in the in in our on our political landscape today, but for the most part, the, that that message of strong resistance um, is there, but it's not being heeded, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think it's still a challenge for people to read that, and that's that's one of the reasons that uh that I focused on this uh, new book is to kind of bring back that voice, you know. Uh, Wasazi was written about 20 years ago, you know, and uh, I think it's still there. The the message is still powerful, but people need a reminder. And so for me, that's what came out of Wasazi was two things. One, why haven't people embraced or why aren't people acting on that strong, radical message of that's authentic from our culture and our people? And two, what have we learned in the interim about what it is to decolonize? You know, and that's maybe the answer to the first question about you know how deeply colonized we are, how the white, how the white society manipulates our own colonization individually and collectively to keep us at a moderate position. And so the 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 new book really I think gets into these themes because these are themes that I've explored since the publication of Wusazei not through writing but through speaking and through through experience, working in communities and just life experience. And so it's it's all uh it's all a continuation, I think. Yeah. I used to say uh, it was neatly like a trilogy, heeding the voice of our ancestors, peace for our righteousness and wasazi, but now I blew that. So there's four now. So I don't know. I don't know what the word is for four, um, but you know a, a set piece of four. We'll have to figure that out. But <laughs> yeah. As as well, it, I
1: love, <laughs> I love that how wasaze really focused on the voices of our warriors because you started out with, you know, heed the voices of our ancestors, and then the critique that came, and then Wasaze is the voices of the warriors in the here and now. And what I love about your new book, of course, is. That it's your voice and your journey throughout this whole time in all different contexts, talking about all different things, but a common theme. And you can see your own growth. You know, thought changes over time. I know this Twitter fighting society would like to have us pinned to every thought we've ever had from the time we were five years old, but we do change and our thoughts. Do expand, um, but you've never lost the core messages of, you know, resisting, decolonizing, and revitalizing ourselves. So, what made you, after all of this time, um, write this book? And for anyone who can't actually see it right now, because we're not yet on YouTube, it's called It's All About the Land, the Collected Talks and Interviews on Indigenous Resurgence by University of Toronto Press released just like in 2023 and our dear friend of course Ann Rogers she helped edit the book and she wrote the introduction to the book which is really awesome like she wrote a really powerful introduction but one of the things I really love about this book is you know how some people might have like one or two comments on the back of a book you've got these major matriarchs and warrior women saying what they think about the book. And let me tell you, you listen to these women. Like you've got uh Grand Chief Skydeer from the Mohawk Council in Ganawage, and she was writing about this book saying it's uh you know how literally this reflects the laws, this reflects the hopes and aspirations of native people but in particular of the Mohawk people and that's a that's a really strong um shout out i guess for the book that y- that you got it right because we don't always get it right and then you've got oh my goodness you've got dr kim tallbear who is like everywhere she is from the united states so she's native american but she's working here in canada now and she's like yeah i'm reading this book and nodding my head the whole time so you know you got it right again when another powerful matriarchs like yep. Yeah, Yep, yep. 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 I mean, she could literally just say yes. And that that would be the end of it. And of course, Mary TG, I just love her. Um, she, She's like, yes, you know, and, and she's got this like positive message about how awesome your book is and the messages in it. And of course, you know, Sakej, Edge Ward, who is Mi'kmaq, he's like, yeah, this is, this is it. You, you got this right. And there's many others who wrote praises for this book. And I have to say, uh, one of my favorite parts is the foreword. Because guess who wrote the foreword? Uh, it's Pam Palmer, And I had the honor of writing the foreword. And not just that. So this is like a big promo to buy this book anyway. But I have a chapter in the book too, which is just like, yay! It's like a double whammy. So I've come... To following all of your work all of these years, collecting all of your books, reading all of your books, really thinking about everything that you've said to. Now I have the honor to write the foreword. I just, it just blows my mind. So I have to say, disclosing all of my personal happiness uh, and honor around this, thank you for allowing me to be part of this awesome collected works at a time when. Hashtag land back is everywhere. And you and I both know uh, land back is not a new call for justice. Uh, but in our modern age of hashtags, uh, I can't think of a more important book right now when everyone's talking about land. Um, is this one of the reasons why you wrote it?
0: First of all, now I'll go for for that introduction to the book and, and all the words. Uh, again, it means a lot. And especially especially pointing out the, um, the recommenders and the people that have come on board uh, with the project and have supported me in, in doing this, uh, starting with yourself and Anne, of course, who are my collaborators and who I'm extremely grateful for, uh, for and having our relationship and being able to work together on this book. Because it was uh, I just want people to know it wasn't it wasn't where. Boom! I just asked Pam to write a and sent it to her, and she sent it back. It was a real, it was a real meeting of the minds, and uh, a collaboration on on this and some of the core ideas. And uh, I learned from that process, continuing to learn, and it was reflected in what I wrote afterwards in, in the series of reflections that I offered on the book. And uh, and Rogers' basic answer to the first question you asked me about. How did this book come about? Um, it was because someone uh, had been listening. Someone was paying attention. Someone had heard the message. And someone got really taken by the idea of Indigenous resurgence and the criticisms and critiques of colonial Canada that I had been putting forward. And that person was Ann Rogers. And this is a person that didn't really have any experience working with indigenous people. She's not Indigenous herself. She's a Canadian. um, But had heard the message and it resonated with her. And she basically brought the idea to me and said, you know, you're you're a person who people need to hear from again. Uh you're you've been doing all these speeches, you've been speaking, you've been traveling around the world, but you haven't really published an an academic or a scholarly book in a long time. Why don't you think about it? And so that, that's where the impetus for the for the book came in and i, I think that kind of coincided too time wise with the passage of time even though we don't feel like it Pam it does pass and we do attain a certain age and with that comes a certain status uh in the society and people started asking me for my advice and and it wasn't where i was a student anymore or it wasn't where i was a translator i didn't feel like that to me you know, people wanted my thoughts. And so I think that really convinced me that, okay, whereas previously I thought, oh, man, it's hubris. That's so arrogant. I, I don't want to write a memoir or I don't want to write a book that focuses on me. You know, there's all these great elders and teachers and leaders that we have to learn from. And I still believe there are of all ages, young people and old. But now people were coming to me and asking me those questions and uh, and looking to me. And so I said, okay, and Anne and and I put our minds together as to what would be the best form, what would be the the best way to kind of revive that whole whole spirit of resistance and true indigenous resurgence in not an academic way, but in the culture, in the discourse in Canada. And so we decided right off the bat that uh, it wasn't gonna be an academic scholarly book per se, it was going to be a book that was informed by ideas. It was going to be an intelligent book for people who were thoughtful, but it was going to be written in a way that engaged people at the level of, of an educated person who cares about these issues. And, and so we wrote it that way. And the best the best material that we found were were the speeches and the interviews and the engagements and the podcasts from four years ago. Uh, that I had done, which are basically conversations where I got to uh, to lay out uh, thinking uh, on certain questions. And, and that's what forms the core of the book. And, you know, when I started circulating it, when the press starts circulating, it to different people, you never know how people are gonna respond. And I don't, I don't know what people think of me. Like, I don't know, maybe my level of confidence, maybe give the mis, misperception, create the misperception that uh, I'm arrogant or anything like that, but I don't think I am. I'm always very, very <laughs> wary of, uh, of people's reactions, and I'm always craving people's, um, I'd say, approval, people I respect. And the people that you listed are the people that I respect, you know. And I've learned over the years that there's all kinds of voices out there uh, at the cafe, on the internet, in academia. You don't have to pay attention to all of them because they're not all worthy of of the critique that they're offering. But some of them are. And if if you listen to those voices, you can learn a lot about yourself and you become a better scholar, you become a better person, you become a better thinker, you become a better leader. And the people that you listen there are among the people that I have listened to and whose voices I respect. And to hear them react to the material that we presented and the way that they did that was uplifting and that was all that was all the the award that I needed i don't know if the book's going to win anything or get i think it was on one list only of uh 100 you know the best books of 2023 yeah. the hill times which is which is great it means a lot cuz those are thinkers but i've learned over the years that the reward for me uh is in the respect i get from people like that and yourself um It's a hard message. It's a critique of Canada. It's a critique of whiteness. It's not the kind of thing people like to hear. It's not the kind of thing people are comfortable hearing. And so, you know, to get on Canada Reads and all that, probably not in the cards for me. (laughs) (laughs) But for Kim TallBear, for Mary TG, for yourself, for, for, for Gus, to say that this speaks to them and that they, that it, that it's something that they approve of and that they support. That's it for me. I'm good to go. And uh, and I really appreciate that.
1: Well, that's awesome. And, you know, we, we've done a, an event together and it was like this massive room. It was packed. You could literally hear a pin drop when you were speaking about the core messages in the book. And, you know, I went away and I thought, oh, gosh. If I was to look at everything I've ever said publicly, like, you know, think about you and I've done so many public speaking events. Um, I mean, sometimes I just go back and look at my old YouTubes and I'm like, oh, 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 I'm, I'm so cringy. But it's what I like about it is you didn't alter the content. So I have been... You know, reviewing or looking at books or giving advice on books where people are doing somewhat similar things. Maybe it's their older writings, but they're like, oh my gosh, I need to change all of that. I need to change it. But you were honest enough to say, you know, I might not have always said it the right way sometimes, but here's what I said. Here's my learning journey. And I went from this to this. And who knows, like in another 20 years, you could have another book and say, and here's all of my journeys in between. It's, I like the honesty of it, though, when I thought about applying it to myself, I was like, hey, that's great. Ty's doing that. And it's just fantastic. And I can learn from him. I'm like, oh, gosh, if I was to do that, oh, I don't know if I'd want to do that. Did you think about that at all?
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and thanks for saying that again, I, I did think about it um, for a minute. you know uh, there's always the instinct you know everybody has these emotions when you're like oh damn why did I say that or you know it's 2023 now you know we don't talk that way anymore or we don't do these things anymore you know but then you think then you just get real like it's it's. do you want to be a real person or do you want to be someone who's curating uh, a brand you know and that's the way I thought about it and I'm just like no, everybody used to talk that way. Everybody, five hundred people, used to come to my talks to hear me talk that way. Um, people used to come from all over the world to come to the program that I built and ran in order to get these this experience. And so, if people are critical of one aspect of that, or of the whole thing, or of me, that's fine. But I'm not going to go and erase or 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 uh, revise my life as if it's the first draft, you know, and, and it needs to be, uh, updated for 2023. And I remember somebody, this, this was quite a while ago, but it, it happened out right from the beginning. Eh? So I was at, uh, NASA, those, those people that are academics will know the native American Indigenous studies association. When it first started NASA and went in Minnesota, it was, and it was on a big panel and there were some other, uh, native luminary scholars on there, uh, and then this one guy, a white guy of course, uh, sitting in the audience trying to catch me on something, you know, and he had he had uh, heeding the voices of our ancestors open to a certain page, and he had highlighted a line. And then he's he read out the line and goes, that's not entirely consistent with uh, what you just said, or I found some discrepancy between heeding the voice of her ancestors and your book, Peace, Power, Regions, blah, 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 is going on and on. eh? And then uh, I think I even interrupted him because that's the way I was back then. And (laughs) I was just like, hey, hey, hey. I said, I got a question for you. Can you tell me what you ate for breakfast and uh, the comment that you made to your wife uh, on November 1st, 1991? And he's looking at me, and I'm like, no, you can't, right? I'm like, so do you want to own everything you've ever said? And can you recollect and defend everything you've ever said and stood by and stand by that today? No, because some things you write, some things you say, some things you do, um, you either forget about it or it's inconsequential or, yeah, it's inconsistent with things that you say and do now and positions you hold now. That's called being a human. That's called evolving. That's called learning. So if you're going to try to hold me to something I wrote, which was that date I mentioned, <laughs> okay, fine, you got me. Oh, one sentence in one book I wrote is inconsistent with one sentence I wrote in another one. So you win. What's What do you want? Like what's your point here? And I think that you know I was a bit flippant, and I was kind of coming at the guy as an individual. Of course, I was trying to you know counter his arrogance with my own. Um, <laughs> but it that's the attitude I take. It's like these should, if you're on if you're an honest person and if you're real, that's natural. Is that you're going to have said and done things that are not the kind of things that you would say and do today? Simple. And anybody who says otherwise is fake. <laughs> anyone anyone who imagines that they've been entirely consistent their whole life with the way that they think and they believe now and have never said or done anything that's inconsistent or insulting or has put someone off or something like that. I, I don't I don't even want to talk to those people because they're not real. They're they're not real people. And so I'd rather talk with the people who have lived who have fallen down, who have gotten up, who have made mistakes, who have pissed people off, who have reconciled, and then now have learned from it and are stronger. Those are my kind of people. Uh, The other people who posture from high horses, nah, they can have the internet.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're definitely not my people because I, I actually look to, I think of all of the things that have happened in my life. They're, you know, lots of good, but also lots of bad, you know, trauma in my life, pain in my life. Um, I'm sure the ways I spoke and the way I reacted at times probably was not very nice. I think about the things that I've said, even now I think, oh man, I want to rewrite Beyond Blood, my book, my very first book, like, because even from my doctorate, which is decades ago, like, no, that's no, 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 no. I want to go this way. I want to do it this way. I want to do it that way. So I get the same thing. I get people, you know, putting on Twitter, ah, no one should listen to you because on chapter whatever, there's this line and you said this and I'm like, yeah, I did. I did. And, um, the difference between me and someone else is, is like what you're saying. Um, it's to be honest, you put it in here it's like, yeah, this is what I said. And the core message is always the same, but sometimes the way we deliver it or the words we use or all like different things might not be the way we do things anymore. And it's like, I want to see people who've made mistakes because that person speaks to my heart. That's the kind of person where I can say, okay, there's still a chance for me because Oh man, I've made so many mistakes and it would be really hard to put yourself out there. And I think about youth who, if they only see the bright and shiny, they only see the native people who are, who are perfect. Um, and they're just shining stars and they are doing great work. I'm not taking them down, but if they think, oh gosh, well, that can't ever be me because man, I've done some mistakes or I've done these terrible things or I've said these things or whatever in time, we don't leave it open for people to say, okay, I made mistakes and I accept responsibility for it and I've changed because of it. I don't expect anyone to accept, you know, my apology or whatever, but uh, here's, here's, here's who I am or here's who I was up until now. And that's my journey. And it's honest. I think if it was edited or glossed over, I probably wouldn't have done the forward because you and I had all these really hard conversations around, okay, let's, let's not sanitize this. You know, let's like, here it is. Here's a journey. Take it or leave it like it or don't. And yeah, maybe there's some inconsistent things in here or when something I said, or who knows, but it's honest. And I really, I really appreciate that. I also appreciate your afterword. So for people who don't know, and I'm not going to give it away, there's a really important afterword that Ty has written where he's reflecting on himself and reflecting on this journey. And I think that is equally as important as all of the content in your speeches. And I mean, I I certainly don't want to speak for you, but how important was it for you to actually put an afterword in there?
0: I think it was, I mean, to me, I, I agree with you. I think it's an important part of the book and it was very important for sure for me to have something to say uh, on those themes and on the issues and the self-reflective element. Um, some of the essays, well, call them essays, some of the chapters, sorry, because they're their interviews, their conversations and their speeches, um, deal with the themes of self-reflection and deal with the themes of masculinity, deal with the themes of, of being, of carrying colonial mentalities and, um, and everything that you've talked about in terms of the pride of being assertive, the, some of the missteps, maybe going too far, being a hard person, growing um, to embrace vulnerability and sensitivity and not having that in the past because of upbringings and just generational shifts. <laughs> and, and so I wanted to say something on that. And I wanted to, given that this book I know now is part of this um, progression. It's like, it's a record of the progression of my thought and my career. Um, I wanted to have something to say that people could refer to, to know where I'm at now uh, mm-hmm. on this. And so in conversations with yourself, uh, I came to understand that better. It came into focus. And so I wanted to make sure that people understood how I have thought through um, the challenges of looking in the mirror, not collectively as a but collect, but individually as tayayake, looking in the mirror. And, and what, how have I thought through and where has that taken me? And so... For me, that's what I wanted to do uh, in the after, but and then also again, as we're doing here, to show respect to the people that have been influential in uh, in helping me do that. And so I do mention some names, some of which we've mentioned here, some of which people will read. Um, and I think that's an important part of being honest. You know, I think that people who, not to be too negative here, but like people who posture and people who create this image. Whether it's online or through their art practice or academics or whatever, of of being on that high horse, as I said, it's a way of it's a way of gatekeeping and keeping younger people out and keeping younger people down because everybody's human. Everybody knows they have faults. Everybody knows that they don't live up entirely to the ideals. And if you set yourself up as this person who's living out the ideal and you're and there's no chinks in your armor, these younger people are never going to never feel like they could achieve what you've achieved. And I think that happens all too often. And so for me to kind of break that down, not to call out every individual who's on a high horse, <laughs> but to, to use myself and say, you know, here's the reality. You can have an impact. You can be, you can be a person involved in uh, resistance. You can move people, you can impact people, but you're also going to live your life and you're also having to think through that. And you don't have to be this idealized notion that anybody has about a human or a man mm-hmm. or a onwe in order to do good things and to step into that space of power. And so for me, I wanted to open that up and say, okay, here, look, oh, I was I used to only I used to only really pay attention, although I craved the attention and the approbation and the 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 accountability of older women in the community. It seemed like almost all my sources and the people that I held up were all men. You know, that's, it wasn't like that in my mind as I was doing it. But looking back, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it was, it was the 1980s and nineties. Okay. Early two thousands and lots of people did that. But I, I learned that I need to do more than that. I need to go, I need to push myself beyond that. And I also need to look at other literatures and other writers and other thinkers, and I need to expand my universe, expand my mentality. And so by talking to these people and, and listening to their critiques, that's what I got. And so I wanted to, I wanted to acknowledge that too. So you can learn even for people who are critical of you, you don't need to shut out criticism. You don't need to demonize. You don't need to gossip and, and, criticize people for who are criticizing you and say that their critiques worth less. In fact, if someone's criticizing you, you should be listening extra hard. Yeah. Even if, even if they are motivated by, uh, by motivations that are not positive, Mm -hmm. they're saying something and you should listen. And if it, and if it actually connects, you're learning from them, whatever their motivations are. And that's, that's what I wanted to say in that. And I wanted to show that. Not just say it, but show it. And it's part of that whole deepening understanding on my part over the years to where I am now, 59, um, that all those voices are important to listen to. And so to me, that was a, a big learning moment. Yeah. Is, it's not a battle yeah. in classic sense. Like maybe when I was in my 40s. And so forth. I would be like, okay, yeah, we're all struggling to 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 be the voice, you know. And if you're if you're if you're right, if you're if you're on side with my political message, I'm going to amplify you. If you're not on side with my political message, I'm going to ignore you, and I don't need to pay attention. This and that. And I think that's the way most people are in the academic environment. But I was like, if you're a true Ongolehuma leader, that's not the way you're supposed to be. Yeah. You're supposed to listen to everybody mm-hmm. and consider all of these ideas for their, their true weight and then and then develop your mind and the message as it goes forward. And so to me, that's what I wanted to show that, yeah, that's that's what I've learned and, and that's what I do now. And so it's really translated into a, a stronger, I'd say, capacity for leadership because the work that I'm doing now in my own community is pretty challenging a lot of a lot of people are like why would you why would you go and take a job where you're in between the bank council and the long houses and why would you put yourself in that position and and try to say to both of them this is I'm going to listen to you and this is where we should be moving that's what I took on and I think that I would not have been able to do this work successfully um without having gone through that and and come to that crucial learning which is that not everybody who who's critical of either a system and idea or you personally is someone to be ignored. Some of them are, some of them just don't make any sense and you have to listen to them, but you have to really respect people fully. You have to respect. And that's different than the idea that I had. And I think a lot of us had um, in academia in the past and not only academia, but in our political movement too. And I think it's still a problem.
1: Yeah, I I agree. It's such an important message too, because it's one of those ones I, you know, I use the example, um, you know, the band member who comes to every band meeting is really angry and demanding information and asking questions that's a person who cares. They're showing up at every meeting. They're asking questions. They're worried about their future, the future of their families. They want to make sure things are going on. How people express themselves is a product of our history, our lived traumas, like all of our experiences. So I try not to look at how someone is expressing themselves, short of like threats or something, but it's not the how they're expressing themselves or the emotion that they have when they're expressing themselves. It's, have you have you asked me a really important question, something I didn't answer or something I didn't clarify or put context to, or maybe I said something and it could be hurtful. Um, some people say, Pam, you should be deleting all the negative comments on some of your social media. And I'm like, I will delete things that are threatening, horribly racist, they never come from our people, but you know all of the the nasty, hurtful things that would hurt people that follow my content. But if it's someone who's like, "Oh, you don't know you're talking about that Supreme Court of Canada case," they're just going to use a notwithstanding clause, and you know you're leading us down a improper path. Well, clearly, I didn't address the notwithstanding clause, so I'm going to do a live show and bring on law- native lawyers and say, "What about this?" Because now I have learned something because of that person's critique and maybe they were just nervous maybe they're anxious about the future or they don't want to get their hopes up so that the listening part I think is important Uh, and and I love that you did that I love that in this book it's all about the land ultimately the the messages there's like personal development personal growth self-critique critique of you know the colonizers but ultimately it all comes down to the land, and our sovereignty, and our ancestors, and what it means to be Mi'kmaq or Haudenosaunee, mm-hmm. or Wet'suwet'en, mm-hmm. and um, very, very inspiring. I encourage everyone to buy it. I will post links about where you can get, it's all about the land, uh, and any of his other books, though I think hearing the voices of our ancestors is going to be like uh, one of those rare commodities, we might have to go to a used bookstore or you might have to buy it from Ty directly because it is few and far between at this point. So if you get it, consider yourself, you got yourself a gem. <laughs> so thank you, Ty, for taking the time to do this. I know we even went over, but, you know, we had to catch up first and I really appreciate it. All the work you do, putting yourself out there. It's very nerve-wracking. Anyone in the public eye, you know, knows that your greatest fear is to wake up in the morning and, oh, oh no, there's all these people who are mad at me for something that I've done. Um, I think as humans, we always, we crave approval. Did I do it right Did I do it respectfully? Am I helping in some way? And that I guess that's all we can do. But I, I thank you so much for being here and allowing me to be part of the book.
0: Y'all, my friend, it's great to be on the Warpath with you. And I look forward to many years of uh, collaboration and friendship.
1: Yes, it's going to be awesome. And to all the listeners on the podcast or the viewers on YouTube, or the people who are reading the closed captions, thank you for supporting the Warrior Life podcast. Thank you for supporting all of the Indigenous peoples that come on this podcast. There's a ton of ways in which you can support them. Find ways to support them. And share this far and wide. And there's free things to do to support this podcast. You can like it, you can share it, you can leave great comments, you can leave five star reviews, use it in your classrooms. There's so many ways that we can help one another. Uh, and I appreciate all of you for staying with the podcast. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting my podcast. Your donations help me keep the Warrior Life Podcast open access to everyone and free from those annoying ads. And it's super simple. Just click on the link below to sign up for a Patreon monthly or yearly subscription, or click the links for the Buy Me A Coffee app or the Ko-fi app to make one-time contributions. And if you belong to an awesome community group, business, or organization that's committed to Indigenous reconciliation, consider sponsoring an episode or two, or as many as you like. Thank you for helping me lift the voices of Indigenous warriors doing phenomenal things to help make our world a better place.